Amazing. Hello. Hello. Great, guys. So um, what we're going to do tonight is um, we're going to look at um, the theme of joy through the lens of the Christmas story, right? The first uh, song that we sang tonight was Joy to the World. Joy to the World, the, lo- uh, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Oh, thanks, Paulie. Right in the middle. Is this fine? Is this good? Um, right, so Joy to the World. Uh, you get some um, uh, you get some bad Christmas carols, you get some average Christmas carols, you get some good Christmas carols, right? And uh, bad Christmas carols is Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, uh, Jingle Bells. I don't know if that could, those could be quali- uh, quali- can qualify as, um, as Christmas carols. Um, what about the first Noel, all right? Uh, just, that's a pretty average one because it just goes like Noel, 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 Noel. It's like Christmas, 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 Christmas. It's pretty average. Then, sorry if... Uh, the first nail is one of your uh, favorite Christmas carols. Uh, then you get, like, the good ones, the really good ones, like Hark the Herald Angels Sing um, and Joy to the World. Joy to the World is one of the, uh, the really good ones. It's got that uh, line, and it says, which, which says, let every heart prepare him room, right? And so that's my hope and my prayer for us tonight as we head towards Tuesday and Wednesday, as we're in the midst of the season, in the midst of all the noise and all the busyness that... Um, that that's what we would do, that we would prepare room and meditate on this true meaning of Christmas, which is uh, so big and vast and great, and, it, requ- and, it, and it's, um, it asks of us to, to, um, to take time to meditate on it, to be grateful for uh, what it means. Um, Joy to the World was written by a guy by the name of Isaac Watts in the 1700s. Uh, this guy wrote a lot of songs. He wrote about 750 songs, 750 hymns. Uh, interesting fact is that um, the reason he wrote Joy to the World was he had a feeling that uh, the songs that were being sung in the church were just joyless and boring. And, uh, and so his uh, father actually challenged him and said, hey, why don't you write something? And so he wrote uh, this song, which was inspired by Psalm 98 verse 4, which says, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Uh, all the earth break forth into joyous song and sing praises, right? And so I wonder if maybe that's been your view of Christianity and faith and church. Maybe you look at it and you're like, oh, this is the most boring thing ever. You know, it's just a, a bunch of rules, a bunch of things that you're meant to do, a bunch of things that you're not meant to do. Um, and yet, my hope is that tonight that you'll get a glimpse of, hey, there is a joy that transcends all joy. There is a joy behind all joy uh, that, that uh, gives us reason to sing. Okay, so we're going to read Luke 2, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 to 12. So if you've got your Bible, you can turn with me. This is uh, right after Jesus has been born. It says this, verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in a field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Right? This is God's word to us. Good news of great joy. Amazing. Which is for all people. Okay, so the scene is a 
group of shepherds. Jesus has just been born. Um, these, this group of shepherds are right outside of Bethlehem where Jesus was born. And an angel appears to them and he says, hey, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. Okay, and so we're going to take a look at those three, uh, those, those three aspects of this Christmas message. Good news of great joy, which is for all people. So the first one is uh, good news. Good news. We, um, we ache for good news, don't we, in South Africa? Maybe you can go to that next slide. All right, this is not good news, right? Saving yourself from stage six load shedding. This is on eyewitness news. This is a terrifying caption. Save yourself from stage six load shedding. And if that's not enough, there's a shock right at the bottom, right? And I think for some of us living in South Africa, maybe this year, you know, you remember the movie Jaws. Maybe the, the theme song for Jaws has been kind of like the soundtrack of your life, just like dead and dead and, you know, you're just always watching out for something that could go wrong, or the next thing that's going to get you, but that's not good news. Let's go to the next slide. This is good news. This is good news, right? See a Khaleesi lifting the William Webb Ellis trophy. Um, this is a month and a half ago, and if you're anything like me, right, this is good news, which has already kind of started to lose some of its luster, right? It's already some becoming to be starting to be something which is uh, in the past, but uh, this announcement that the angel makes about this good news is something, it's an announcement that was firstly made thousands of kilometers in the Middle East, right, away from where we are, the tip of Africa, and also 2,000 years ago, right? So this is good news, which is a little bit on another level, okay? And uh, it's had some staying power. It's had some momentum and continues to have um, momentum. What is this good news? And go to the next slide. The good news is this, that today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, right? Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. So this good news contains two parts. Firstly is this, that a Savior has been born. He is the Lord, right? And a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah, so firstly, he is the Lord. When these shepherds heard the word Lord, they wouldn't have maybe like we do thought of it in terms of a British Lord or, you know, Lord and Lady, someone of nobility in the royal monarchy. But to them, when they heard the word Lord, they would have heard it uh, um, in terms of uh, Yahweh or Jehovah, um, the God of the Old Testament, the creator of the heavens and the earth, right? They would have known uh, the Old Testament scriptures. They would have known it. Uh, they would have known that God had manifested himself um, to his people in various ways. I mean, there's Moses in the burning bush, right? There's uh, God guiding his people through the wilderness as a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire during the night. But I don't think anyone, right, no one was expecting God to manifest himself as a human being. And, uh, and that's the thing about Jesus, right? He didn't claim to be a messenger from God or a good teacher. No, he claimed to be God, right? He didn't claim to just be like some great prophet which has come from God with a message. No, he claimed to be God. When that angel appeared to uh, Joseph, he said, hey, Mary is pregnant and she'll give birth and you'll call his name Emmanuel, right? Which means God with us, God with us. And uh, C.S. Lewis is so helpful in, uh, in understanding this um, the reality of this, the, the, the truth of this more clearly. In um, 1961, uh, Yuri Gagarin, who's a Russian astronaut, right? He was the first man to be sent into uh, space. And uh, the Russians, the premier of Russia made, um, 
He made a statement. He said that Russia is largely an atheist nation, and now more than ever, we've got proof for atheism because we've sent a man into space. We got there, and there is no God. There is no God. And C.S. Lewis, who was alive at the time, uh, he wrote an essay called the seeing, the, the seeing Eye in response to that statement. And he said, he said this. He said, think about it. Think about it, right? If there is a God, we wouldn't relate to him the way that the person living on the first floor relates to a person living on the second floor, right? Because that's what the Russian premier was saying. He said, hey, we're on the first floor. We sent a man up to the second floor. We got there. No one was home. And so there's no God, Okay. But what C.S. Lewis was saying, hey, we wouldn't relate to a God the way that a person on the first floor relates to a person on the second floor, but rather we would relate to God the way that Shakespeare, right, relates to Hamlet, or the way that Hamlet relates to Shakespeare. Shakespeare created uh, Hamlet, right? The only way that Hamlet could ever know anything about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare revealed information about himself to Hamlet, Right? Hamlet wouldn't be able to go and be on stage and climb up to uh, the roof of the stage and look around and say, hey, there's no Shakespeare. The only way that Hamlet could ever know anything about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare revealed information about himself. And friends, this is the, this is the claim that we're making about Christianity, right? That God looked into the story of humanity. God looked into the story of humanity and he loved us. And not only did he reveal information about himself to us through his word, through creation, but he wrote himself into our story, into the story of humanity to show us who he is, to show us his love. Right? God revealed himself to us in a person of Jesus. In Jesus, we can know God. In Jesus, we can come face to face with God. We can see his glory. We can see his wisdom. We can see his love. We can see his joy. We can see his justice. We can see his majesty all in the person of Jesus, right? So that's the good news um, that this uh, angel is giving, that a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah. Here's the second part. A Savior has been born. He is, he is the Lord. He is the Messiah. Okay? So the good news is that not only has God revealed himself to us so that we can know him, but he's also written himself into our story to do things on our behalf. See, you can only truly understand the good news of the gospel uh, when you come to terms that, hey, there's actually some bad news which makes the good news good, right? And the bad news is, is our sin. And we don't really speak about sin outside of church, but it doesn't remove the fact that, hey, there is a, a thing called sin which is uh, within us. There is a brokenness in the world. I mean, all you need to do is just read the news for like three minutes. Just scroll through your Twitter feed uh, to be pretty depressed and to know that, hey, there's a brokenness in the world. And so often we can think like, hey, that's outside of ourselves. But the reality is, hey, that's, that's in us, in us as humanity, there's a brokenness. And so what is sin? Sin is, is this, that God created mankind. God created man and woman. He created us to worship him, right, uh, for us to delight in him. Jeff prayed that during our prayer meeting, God desires for us, desires for us to, to delight in Him, right? We were made to find our joy, to find ultimate joy and satisfaction in God, to look to Him, to worship Him. But what do we do? We decide to worship ourselves. In a sense, we turn our back on God, we turn away from Him, and uh, we reject Him, right? And we worship creation, we worship ourselves rather than the creator of the heavens and the earth, which is crazy, and brokenness and sin and uh, distortion enters into 
humanity. And as St. Augustine says, he says it so well. He says, we become bent in, bent in. That's what sin does, bent in over ourselves, self-obsessed, right? Looking to ourselves, trying to find that joy in ourselves when there's this ultimate incredible joy and satisfaction to be found in the creator of the heavens and the earth, which we couldn't possibly find in ourselves or in creation. But that's where this brokenness comes from. That's the root of this brokenness, right? So we only can, we, you might say like, yeah, okay, well, is it so bad? Is it so bad? But we can only, you know, we, we need to understand the seriousness of our sin against a holy creator. And Tim Kelly is so helpful in this. He says that, hey, if you lie uh, to a stranger on the street and you get caught out, right, what's the worst that could happen? That person might be a little bit disappointed with you, right? That's, that's it. If you lie to your friend, hey, you could hurt that friendship, okay? If you lie to your employer, Let's say you lie to your employer, um, you could lose your job if you get caught out. If you lie to your spouse, right, you could lose your marriage, okay? You could, uh, if you've got kids, it could ruin your family. Now, take it to the next level. Let's say you lie to a judge under oath in a courtroom. You could go to jail, right? Uh, the consequences depend on the nature of the relationship. And so, imagine if you take that infinitely more to the creator of the heavens and the earth, whom there is no darkness, within whom there's no darkness, right? And that our sin against him, the consequences for that, for that sin is infinitely, infinitely more. So that's our problem, right? You're born into that. You don't, you, you, I mean, it's not like you came in blameless. That's what you were born into, right? That's our problem. But the good news is that Christ came to deal with the penalty of our sin. He came to pay the price. Um, Ultimately, he was born, right, to die. That Jesus was born to bring us to God. He was the lamb that would be slain. Uh, the lamb that was, in many ways, you see uh, in the Old Testament as a prophecy of what Jesus would do. You think about Abraham and Isaac, and Abraham is about to sacrifice his son Isaac, and God says, no, here's a lamb, and the lamb takes the place of Isaac, and Isaac is spared. And so this is the good news. And this would have sent shockwaves to to the shepherds as they heard this message, right? Because they knew the Old Testament, but there's something else about the scene, right, that makes this even more remarkable, that they would have clicked. They would have known immediately that, hey, this is a Savior who's going to take away the sins of the world through his death. Um, we asked the question, like, who were these shepherds? What kind of sheep were they? They weren't ordinary shepherds. They weren't ordinary sheep. Um, they were raising sheep that uh, would be used for... Um, the Jewish sacrifice, right? It's where an animal is sacrificed to uh, atone for the sins of men within the temple. And uh, it required a spotless uh, lamb without blemish. And so what they would do is when the sheep uh, was about to give birth, they would have this tower. They were called the tower of the flock. And it had a lower level, a bottom level. And the sheep would give birth in the bottom level, in the lower level of this tower, and they would look after this lamb, right? This lamb would be wrapped in swaddling clothes. Um, they had a limestone rock which was carved out, which was called a manger. And they would place the lamb inside this manger to, um, to make sure that it remained unblemished. They really looked after this lamb 24 hours a day, making sure it's spotless, looking after this little lamb, right? And what would happen is during Passover, remember Passover is where God delivered his people out of Egypt, 
right? And he, uh, they were in captivity in Egypt, and God said, okay, take a lamb, take the blood of a lamb, um, brush it over the doorposts of where you live. And as death moved through Egypt, right, um, the, God's people who had the, uh, the blood of the lamb covering them were spared death, okay? And so Passover, as it was celebrated in subsequent years, people would travel from all over, hundreds of kilometers, to go and sacrifice a lamb. And I imagine you were traveling, traveling uh, from far, and you've got your little lamb, and you're just trying your best to keep it unblemished and spotless and, uh, and just to keep it clean. You probably wouldn't be able to do that, right? So these guys were uh, just outside of Jerusalem, and they, would, hey, they, had a, they were business people, and they would sell you a perfect, spotless uh, lamb that you could go and sacrifice in a temple. And so now imagine these shepherds and this angel says to them that this will be a sign for you, that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, right? Here's these guys who kind of bring up these spotless lambs in mangers, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and they say, hey, this is your savior. This will be a sign for you. So right from the start, right from Jesus' birth, there was a prophecy that he would be the one that would pay for the sins of the world. And John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus for the first time, what does he say? He says, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. That is what Christmas is about, isn't it? That sin came and drove this chasm between mankind, between us and the holy creator. And Jesus came and he stood in the middle. He stood in, he stood in that gap, right? We needed a perfect, Jesus was completely human. We needed a man, a perfect a representation who would live a sinless life. And he was God. We needed God himself to pay for the penalty, for the consequences of our sin. And so it could only be Jesus. It could only be done in this way that we could be brought into relationship with God, that there could be restoration of the relationship between us and our Creator. John Stott puts it so well, it will be up on the screen, he says this, for the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Isn't it great? It's that great exchange that takes place. And so that's the, that's the good news that the angels come and declare. Good news of great joy, of great joy that leads to great joy, not mediocre joy, not, dis, not just joy. This is great joy, right? That we can have that relationship restored with our Father. And I want to make just three observations about this joy, right? That's going to help us understand why this is great joy. And the first one is this, that God is joyful. God is joyful. God is the most joyful and happy being in the universe, right? So God existed for all eternity past in a Trinitarian relationship with the Son and the Spirit, right? God was never alone. There was never a moment where God was not loved. He, was, he always had someone to love. There's this beautiful fellowship that existed for all eternity, eternity past, this joy that existed within the Trinity. And out of that delight, out of that absolute delight, there's an overflow and God creates. He creates, if you look at creation, you just 
it's incredible. It's, it points to God. If you think that God is the one who invented humor, God is the one who invented laughter, God is the one who, uh, you know, if you look at the sunsets and the sunrise, God is the one who is behind it all. He was perfectly, um, he didn't need anything. He was radiant. Michael Reeves says it this way, that God's triune being is radiant. He radiates beauty and joy, right? And so in Christ, Christ is God. And so in Christ, we can come face to face with this joy that we find in the Trinity, right? In Jesus, we see the joy of the Father. I wonder what your view is of Jesus, right? If you think about Jesus, you close your eyes, you think about, you think about it. Uh, is it a picture that we find in, you know, some old church, uh, a, a guy with hair that's got too much conditioner in and a perfect white robe, and he's just, you know, perfect. Um, and the reality is he was a Middle Eastern man who, who the Bible says, you know, you know, he wasn't particularly good looking or anything like that. Um, maybe a little bit overweight. He did walk a lot. But uh, the Gospels, we read that, um, that he ate a lot. He ate a lot. That's, that's, uh, he, he ate. No, he didn't eat cupcakes. But uh, Jesus loved feasting. Okay? He loved feasting. feasting. Uh, one commentator says that uh, Jesus is either uh, always going to a meal, at a meal, or he's coming home from a meal. Right? This man... Uh, was literally going from party to party and feasting and being with people, right? Children loved this man. I don't know how many kids you know who like being around grumpy people. Jesus wasn't grumpy. He was amazing. He was filled with joy. He was joyful, and that means God is incredibly joyful, right? But it also says that Jesus was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief, so he wasn't blissfully joyful. But Jesus had a way of just holding both the brokenness and the sorrow and the joy of eternity uh, in, light of, in light of eternity, right? He was able to hold both the joy and the sorrow in light of eternity, knowing that that sorrow and the brokenness was temporary. It would fall away. But the joy was eternal. The joy was deeper. And, um, and so Jesus was just this incredible man of joy. God is the most happiest and joyful person that there is. Here's the second thing about joy. That joy is available in Jesus to all. That joy, his joy is available uh, in Christ to all, no matter what your circumstances are, right? As we live in relationship with Jesus, we live in direct contact with the source of all joy. And anyone can have this, this eternal joy, the joy behind all joy that we know, right? In His presence, there is fullness of joy, right? In John chapter 15, Jesus says, remain in me, remain in me, right? So that my joy may be in you, my joy may be in you, the joy of the Trinity, the joy of God, that ultimate joy, so that it may be you and so that your joy may be complete, so that your joy may be full. Carolyn mentioned that scripture where Jesus is on the Sermon of the Mount and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And I don't think Jesus was saying, hey, you can only be blessed if you're poor, if you're poor in spirit. I think he was saying that, hey, even if you are poor, Right, you can be happy. That's what that word blessed means. It means to be happy. You can experience a deep sense of joy regardless of your circumstances. And you think of the Apostle Paul, uh, much of the New Testament, uh, written from a jail cell, okay? This is a man who had an incredible level of joy and hope uh, in the midst of some really tough circumstances. He says, hey, to live is, to live is Christ and to die is gain, right? 
He says, to live is Christ. I am here. I want to do God's will that God has called me to do. And that is great. And I'm going to keep on doing it. It doesn't matter what's going on in my life. And even if I lose my life, it doesn't matter because that will be gain because I'll get to be with my Savior. And I think that maybe the two mistakes that we make when it comes to joy is that uh, we settle for less, right? We've got, uh, we, our joy becomes misdirected. We think that our joy is based on our circumstances, and that's the case. It's a very narrow view of joy, isn't it? It's joy that is fleeting. It's up and down depending on your circumstances. And if it's misdirected, we so often buy into the, uh, the message of our city and of our culture that, hey, find your joy in this. Ultimate joy is really that perfect Instagram um, lifestyle with all the right experiences. That's it. Well, ultimate joy is in that, um, that uh, career um, position or in the bank balance or owning uh, that perfect home or having the perfect family. But those things are, those things are good, but it's, there's a joy behind the joy. There's an inventor of the joy, which is so much more and so much over and above our circumstances, which are fleeting. Those things will never be able to carry the eternal weight, right, of your hopes and your dreams. And you think about, uh, you know, the joy we felt when Sia Khaleesi lifted that trophy, that's going to fade. That's going to fade, and these things are no different. There's a joy that is so much bigger, that is transcendent, that is never-ending, and that's the joy which we found, the joy which has existed for all eternity past in the Trinity. This is a joy that is lasting, okay, and you can have that joy. And here's the third thing. Followers of Jesus grow into deeply joyful people, that this is Jesus. As you follow him, this is his vision for your life, that you would grow in a deeper joy as you get to know him, as you become, as you get into relationship with him, that we would become like Jesus, right? That we would become like Jesus, deeply, deeply joyful. Jesus had a, a way of, of uh, kind of understanding that there's an internal story that he lived with, this eternal perspective. He knew that his life fitted into this eternal story, right? And that was the joy that carried him through. And joy is, is not just an emotion. It's a condition of the heart, right? And Jesus' long-term goal is that our hearts would change and that we would grow and deepen in the joy that he has for us. As we follow Jesus, yes, he dealt with the penalty of sin. That's dealt with, right? That's behind you. Nothing that you do adds or contributes to that at all. But as we walk with Jesus, as we look to him, he deals with the presence of sin in our lives. As we look to him, as we behold him, as we are more in awe of him, as we open up his word, as we learn more about God, as the gospel comes and gets deeper into our heart, the condition of our heart changes and there's a deepening joy that we experience in our lives, right? As we look away from ourselves, as we look away from our circumstances, as we fix our eyes on the joy behind the joy, the creator of the heavens and the earth. All right, so it's good news, and it brings great joy, and it's for all people. It is for all people, right? This really is for all people. No one's too sinful. No one's too far gone. Jesus is making this invitation as wide as possible. Matthew uh, begins his gospel, right, with the genealogy of Jesus. And uh, if you go and read it, you'll, uh, you'll find it that it's quite remarkable. You'd think that the Savior of the world, the Son of God, would be born into a line of nobility, uh, people who have got it all together. But when you go and dig a little bit deeper into the list of people that Matthew uh, puts forth, that is Jesus' 
genealogy, right, you'll see that it just contains people who didn't have it all together, people who were broken. Uh, you look and you see people such as uh, David, right? Here's David, uh, a man who committed adultery, the great King David who committed adultery. And not only just did he just commit adultery, he also had this woman's husband murder, so murdered. So he essentially committed murder. You've got Rahab, who's a prostitute in Jericho. You've got, as Paul mentioned, Mary, right? This, this scandalous story about this teenage pregnancy, which must have followed Jesus around all his life, the, this family, right? This scandalous story. What does it mean? Why, when you're writing a gospel about the Savior of the world, would you include all these people? And I think that Matthew was, was saying this, right? That against this backdrop of brokenness, emerges this incredible Savior, emerges this hope. I think what, what he was saying that was that Jesus was willing, right, to get his hands dirty, to enter into our mess, to enter into the brokenness of our lives, that he was willing to relate to humanity, right? He was able to take all these people and weave them into the story of redemption, and he's able to take your life and weave it into the story of redemption and bring about restoration. It's not pedigree that matters, it's grace that matters. It is grace that matters. And I think Matthew got this more than anyone else. Matthew, the tax collector who was a Jew and robbed from his own people to give to the Romans, he was a hated man, right? He had a love for money. He was broken and fallen, and yet Jesus comes to that man and says, hey, follow me follow me. And you think Matthew it went back to his ways. No, he followed Jesus. And as he walked and as he looked to Jesus, as he spent time with, with Jesus, his heart began to change, right? He began to change. Isn't that amazing? So that's the incredible message of Christmas, friends. Good news of great joy, which is for all people. The incredible news of Christmas message is that God went to infinite lengths to draw near to you. Right? The creator of the heavens and the earth has written himself into the story of his humanity. And he is willing to enter into your life to bring about restoration. He calls you to follow him. He says, hey, there is a greater joy. There's a vision for your life that I have to deepen the joy that you have and to deepen the satisfaction that you have. God went to infinite lengths. That's what Christmas is about. He went to infinite lengths to draw near to you, to come near to you. Now you draw near to him. You draw near to him, right? Set your sights higher. There's a greater joy that Christmas is about. Um, I want to land with this, okay? So good news, great joy, which is for all people. I want to go back to our carol, Joy to the World. Um, here's a little twist in the story, right, in the carol. Here's a little twist. Um, Isaac Watts, when he wrote that uh, carol or hymn in uh, the 1700s, he didn't have Christmas in mind when he wrote Joy to the World, right? He never intended it for, for it to be sung during Christmas. It wasn't about Jesus' first coming, but it was actually about Jesus' second coming, right? When, earth, when heaven and earth receive uh, her king, we didn't receive Jesus the first time he came. We, he was rejected. He was despised, but there will be a day 
Antichrist, where Jesus will come, where he will rightfully be on the throne, where there will be a new heavens and a new earth. This kingdom which Jesus has launched and, and during his first coming will be brought to completion when Christ comes again. The Bible speaks about a new heavens and a new earth, like no more, uh, no more brokenness, no more sin, no more hurt, no more injustice, no more tears, no more sorrow. Our joy will be complete. The presence of sin, gone, right? The penalty of sin, gone. We will be like Jesus. That depth will be complete, right? We will uh, look to God. We will gaze upon his glory. That is the good life. And that's the hope that we get to live with today. That Jesus comes and says to you, uh, as you begin to follow him, as you come to faith, he doesn't call you uh, to stand aside while he continues to advance his kingdom. No, he calls you to come alongside him. He calls you to join him as he advances his kingdom, to share in this joy that as a Christ follower, the message of Christmas is something that we get to carry into a city that desperately needs to hear good news, right? Our city desperately needs to hear good news, and we get to host the presence of God. We get to take his spirit into our city as he advances his kingdom. It's the future kingdom breaking through into the present kingdom, and we get to be part of that, friends. And so that's the good life. That's the good life, that we get to be part of that, right? And so I want to call us this Christmas to set our sights higher, right? to, to look at, at the joy behind all joy. Yes, there's great things about Christmas, presents and family time and holidays and, and all kinds of things. And those things are great, right? But look at the joy behind all joy, right? Set your sights higher. Great. Can I ask you to stand? And then we're going to pray for us. Father, we thank you for your incredible love. We thank you for your presence, Lord. Thank you that, uh, yeah, God, that you looked into our story. You saw our brokenness. You saw the mess that we had made. And you didn't just kind of throw it all away. Uh, but you made a plan and you wrote yourself into our story. You entered into our mess. Christ, you came where sin had driven that massive chasm between mankind, between us and the joy giver, the, the one in whom we find ultimate satisfaction, our creator, our God. Christ, you came and made a way for us to be reconciled. Such a gift, Lord, your grace, that we get to come into your presence tonight, that we get to be part of this, this massive story, Lord. So God, this Christmas, as we look back and we're so grateful for uh, just the launching of this kingdom in Christ, what you've come to do for us and what you did for us and that we get to join you. We also look forward and we thank you for the hope that we can live in today, that we can take into our city, that we live with this incredible hope, a hope that transcends circumstances, a joy that transcends circumstances. And God, won't you come and just deepen that in our hearts, Lord? Won't you come and just bring about just a sense of an awareness of your presence, of your kindness, of your love, Lord. In the next couple of days, may we do what we sang in that Christmas carol. May we prepare your room. May we find stillness to meditate on this and to open your word and to come to you, to lift up our gaze to you. May we worship you, Lord. <clears throat>